I've been struck this Christmas season how Christmas is rather uniquely a time of questions. I've noticed that questions are often found in our Christmas hymns. What child is this laid to rest on Mary's lap? Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? Why lies he in such mean estate? Who is this in yonder stall? Mary, did you know? On and on they go. Songwriters have rightly put questions into Christmas songs in order to try to capture the wonder, the awe, and the unthinkable nature of the Christmas story. Questions were often the first reactions of those in the Christmas story. Like Mary, how can this be since I'm a virgin, she asked the angel. Why me? Who am I that my Lord should come to me? Of course, it's not just back then in Bible times that questions occurred around Christmas time. This Christmas, I've been struck by the sheer number of questions, practical, logistical questions that need to get asked and answered in the month of December. I'm really glad that we don't, on December 1st, get a list of questions that we will need to ask throughout this month, and we're going to need to check them off and work through this list one by one. It's a good thing, because there are a lot of questions. What are we going to get for the kids? What about kid one, kid two, kid three, kid four? Did we buy enough? Is it, an, is it even? What do you want for Christmas? What am I going to get my wife for Christmas? What are we going to eat tonight for dinner? What are we going to have for Christmas dinner? What do we have tonight? Do we have anything on the calendar? Oh, a party? What do I have to wear? Do I really have to go? That's me in the month of December. For kids at Christmas time, it's a great time to ask new questions about Jesus, about his coming, about his birth, about what that means and what it entails. And with their imaginations running wild sometimes, especially at young ages, their, their curiosity is heightened. They ask fresh questions about Jesus, and it's wonderful. For adults, Christmas can be a time of asking some painful personal questions, big meaning kind of questions, life's meaning kind of questions, especially as it draws to the end of a year. Maybe people here tonight Earlier today, maybe you asked, who am I? What am I doing here? What's going to happen to me in 2017? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my marriage? What will happen with my kids in this next year? What's this world coming to? What's the meaning of it all? What's the point? Well, this evening, I'd like to turn our attention to John chapter 1 in the New Testament, a passage that gives no questions, just all answers, just answers, beautiful, wonderful answers. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel account. You might know there are four gospel accounts, that is, uh, stories of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They're all very similar, but they also have their own unique features. For instance, Matthew and Luke, the first and the third, they give us the facts of the Christmas story very well. The angel's announcement, the trek to Bethlehem, the manger scene, the shepherds, the wise men. 
But Matthew and Luke only give us hints about the meaning of these facts. John, on the other hand, is the mirror opposite. He assumes the facts of the birth, written after, likely, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is intent on putting to the forefront the meaning of it all, the interpretation of it all, the explanation and the theology of the Christmas story. So John 1 is a wonderful place to go to talk about the meaning of Christmas. He tells us who Jesus is with theses, with statements, with declarations, with truths. Not just stories that you can like or not like, be warmed by or, or, or criticize. John tells us in bold, punchy prose who Jesus is where he has been, what he is doing, and what all of it means. I came across a survey this, survey this week done by the British Humanist Society about the meaning of Christmas. They took a poll and they asked, Christmas is about fill in the blank, and then they ranked the most popular to less popular of what people answered. So most popular was Christmas is about family. Then, presents. Others said Christmas is about food and drinks and parties. Some said Christmas is about lights and decoration. Some said Christmas is about being cozy or traditions or friends or TV or relaxation. And 11th on the list, Christmas is about celebrating Christ's birth. Now, John writes his gospel account to convince you that Jesus doesn't just need a birthday. He needs every day. He's not just someone who should be celebrated at Christmas. John writes to convince us of who Jesus is, and Jesus is who Jesus said he was, and who John describes for us. He writes to convince us to believe. He puts this explicitly at the very end of the book. The last verse of John, he says, These things were written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So here, he says, Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the promised one, the answer, the fulfillment. He says, Jesus is the Son of God. He is of God himself, yet distinct from God the Father. He's God the Son. Those are a couple ways to describe who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God. But at the beginning of the book, within 18 verses, as sort of a preface to the whole thing, John gives us, yes, a lot of different words, but three key words loaded with meaning, pregnant with significance, where he tells us that Jesus is the word, Jesus is the light, and Jesus is the glory of God. We'll take each of those one at a time and then at the end talk about a proper response to this kind of Jesus. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made 
that was made. So first, Jesus is the Word. Now what does that mean, Jesus is the Word? Two things, I think. I think John intends for his readers to hear two things, or at least intends two different audiences to hear this differently. If you might wonder, is that legitimate to, to wonder whether John has two different audiences in mind, whether he has sort of double layers of meaning in view? Just know that John does this all over the place. You read through John and even the commentators, the scholars get to certain parts and they say, it could be X, it could be Y, and usually the answer is yes, both. He just layers up things like this. So I think he had Jewish readers in mind when he talked about Jesus as the word. And Jewish readers would have had ringing in the back of their minds the 700 plus times in the Old Testament there was this phrase, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to the prophet and said, the word of the Lord came 700 plus times. God spoke. The word of the Lord is God moving, God acting, God delivering, God revealing, God making things happen. And John tells us that Jesus is that word in the flesh. He's the word of God incarnate. In fact, Jesus was the means by which worlds and stars came into beginning in the very beginning. John says, in the beginning implying that Jesus was before that. He's before there was a beginning. In the beginning, whatever beginning you want to talk about, in the beginning, there was the Word with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through him. Nothing made was made apart from him. So all of this should remind us of that creation account the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, the very first verse of our Bible says, in the beginning, just like John begins his account of Jesus, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And how did God create the heavens and the earth in Genesis? He spoke and it was done. Light, let there be light and there was light. It was by his word that the words, worlds were formed. And Jesus is that word. And that word has now come in human flesh. Jesus is the God-man. In Jesus, God has forever hitched himself to his creation. It's unthinkable. It's mind-boggling. He's the word. God's word. That's the first way John intends for the word, word, to be understood. The word of the Lord in the flesh. But he also has intentions to convince Greek readers to believe in Jesus. And Greek hearers, readers, would have heard that word logos, word, differently. A philosopher back in 600 years or so before Jesus, Heraclitus, he started talking about a universal principle, which he called the logos, the word, as that thing that orders all matter and events. The logos, he said, is the explanation for everything. It's the reason. Heraclitus spoke of logos sort of like Star Wars speaks of the force. 
What is the force? You know what it is, kind of, but you can't really define it. I've seen all the Star Wars movies. I don't think I've ever been offered a definition about the force. The force is just the thing. It's out there. It's the power. It's behind everything. It's the explanation. It's, it's the answer. At any point in Star Wars, you could ask a question, and the right answer would be the force. Why are you hungry, Luke? The force. <laughs> Back to Greek philosophy once more. Plato, in the 4th century B.C., when he talked about limitations to human knowledge, he anticipated the possibility of a day when there'd be one thing that comes and makes sense of it all. The logos, the word. He said this, quote, It may be that someday there comes forth from God a word, a logos, which will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. 400 years before Christ, before John wrote. It's amazing. And yet for Heraclitus and for Plato, the Logos was a thing. It was a force. It, it was a power. It was an idea. It was an explanation. So John is taking advantage of what is kind of true of what they thought, but he's injecting it with much fuller meaning and significance and truth. For John, the Logos isn't a force or a thing or an idea. It's a person. It's Jesus who was himself eternal creator, God himself. That's the word. That's Christmas. So do you see already how this sort of blows up a lot of our trinkets of Christmas celebrations? Many of us have a very truncated idea about Jesus. Some like him and say he's a good teacher. Some say he was the most moral man of all time. Some view him as a, a necessary and important political or religious re revolutionary. Or as one guy once described him to me, he said, he's the world's best sayer of sayings. And I wrote that down because I thought that's, that's precious, that's good. The world's best sayer of sayings. This guy was not the world's best sayer of sayings, was he? Some think he, that Jesus was a, an accidentally famous guy who just happens to have a big old birthday once a year and you might as well join in on the parties and get some presents out of it. Jesus wasn't just an inspiration for caring for people or caring for the needy or, or loving each other or learning to turn the other cheek. If what John writes here is true of Jesus, Jesus isn't even a great healer. He's not a miracle worker. He's not even a religion starter. He is not one legitimate way to get to God or to go to heaven. He is not even the way to God. Though that's true. It's just that more needs to be said. He's God. He has God come to us. He's the answer, the explanation, the meaning. He's the key that unlocks all the doors of meaning and truth. So you cannot rightly know yourself or your problems or this world or the solution or God himself apart from Jesus, his son. He's the final word. Secondly, Jesus is the light. Verses 4 through 9 of John 1 tell us he's the light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is the light. He's the creator who creates light. Light's good. He's good. And John here, once again, is sort of mixing the physical light and the spiritual light in order to communicate real truth about Jesus. Think of how physical light works and then translate that to the spiritual scene with Jesus' coming. Light enables us to see. And so Jesus came to help us see. Jesus came to a dark world. Verse 9 talks about world, the world. And in John, the world is almost always a bad thing. It's that realm of human rebellion against God. That's the world. He came to the world, the dark world. We're not an enlightened world, even today. We're not an enlightened world. By nature, because of sin in this world, we are dark. This world is dark. Oh, you can show me scientific discoveries. Yes, I know. And you can think that we keep getting more knowledge, and we do. But we're not an enlightened people like we need to be, or else Jesus never needed to come. We're born spiritually blind, This is true today is ever. Jesus came to help us see. He came to help us see ourselves. And at first, that's painful. It's necessary, but it's painful. We don't really want to see ourselves. We see ourselves like we want to see ourselves. We don't see ourselves the way God sees us in the way it's true. And so the light comes into the world and Jesus says this in John 3, the light prefers dark, the, the world prefers darkness rather than light. It flees from the light lest its sins would be exposed. But that's where there's help in healing, in the light. Only Jesus can get us past the, the experience of guilt and exposure and vulnerability and trouble that makes us want to flee into the darkness and hide from the light. Jesus came to show us the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He came down to us. We couldn't find our way to him. The light helps us to see not just the way, but the one. Jesus, the light, Notice this, isn't shining on something else. That's what John the Baptist was doing. He was a a lesser light, an important light. He was a preacher who went before the ministry of Jesus, preparing the way and preaching that the kingdom was coming, and then the king is about to, to take the scene. That was an important light, but he pointed to the greater light. And Jesus, the light, is himself shining. You don't look to the to the lesser lights, but to the greatest light. We often don't look directly at lights. We use light to see other things, but this light is perfect. It's healing, not just blinding. Jesus is the light of the world. He came 
so that we would see light. And whoever believes in him, he says, would not remain in darkness. He's the light. The light overcomes darkness. Verse 5 says, the darkness has not overcome it. You might try to flee from the light. You might try to hide in darkness. But, but you know how this goes with light and darkness, don't you? You know that a, a bright flashlight in a dark room changes that room. A flashlight, there's no such thing called a flash dark. This plastic tube that shines darkness into light, that doesn't exist. I don't think it exists. Maybe some scientists here are working on that right now. But, but you know how light and darkness work. You turn on a light, the darkness goes away. Light overcomes darkness, and Jesus overcomes darkness and gives light. And he gives light and life, we're told here. That's another thing the light does. It gives life. There's no life without light. That's a principle embedded in creation. Jesus is the true life, not just physical life, but eternal life, spiritual life, abundant life, real life now. That doesn't mean an easy life, but it does mean a life that makes sense. A real life now and even life after we die. Well, let's move on in working through John 1. We're going to skip verses 10 through 13 for now. We'll come back to those verses in just a little bit here. They talk about the response that might come from this, this word, this light. But then after that, John goes on to tell us that Jesus is the glory. He's the glory. Look at verse 14 if you have a Bible with you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus came to show us God's glory. He is the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now here, not only is John stacking truth upon truth, but he's also hinting back to the Old Testament to add significance to a plain reading of the words he's using. So when he says that Jesus dwelt among us, he uses a specialized word, a technical word. He could have said, Jesus walked among us. He sat with us. He hung out with us. He was near us. He, he moved into the neighborhood. He says he dwelt. The actual word is that he tabernacled among us. In Exodus 25, God initiated this thing, the tabernacle, where his presence would remain in the, in the midst of his people in a tent. It was the place of God's mediated presence among his people. John wants us to think about that when we think of Jesus. Jesus tabernacled among us. He's the new embodiment, the, the house, the place of the presence of God. It's where you go to get to God. 
And that idea of seeing glory also looks back to Exodus. Exodus 33 and 34, seeing glory. There in Exodus 33, Moses, he needed encouragement. He was discouraged by the complaining people in the wilderness as they wandered. And he said, God, show me your glory that I might know you and that I might know you're with us. And here's what God said. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And from there, God tucked Moses in the cleft of the rock. God said he would shield Moses' face and let the, the trail end of his glory pass by. And so Moses would get a shielded trail end of the glory of God because you can't see God and live. And he would say his name as he passed by. Remember how John 1 talked about we've seen his glory full of grace and truth. Two key words, grace and truth. Well, you're moving from Greek in the New Testament to Hebrew in the Old Testament, but basically they're the same words when God passed by in Exodus 34 and proclaimed his name. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. John wants us to think about these Old Testament foreshadows, which glorious as they were, needed as they were in their time, they were hints and foreshadows of a greater glory that would come in the embodiment of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. No one's ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. No man can see God and live but God's glory dwelt in human flesh, and we have seen his glory. Glory full of grace and truth. With fullness of this grace and glory, we have received, he says, grace upon grace. God was gracious to Moses to show him a hint, a, a, a shadow, a, a, a tail end of his glory. But oh, how much more gracious God has been to give us grace upon grace in Jesus, grace and truth that's to the full when Jesus came, when Jesus lived, when Jesus walked, when Jesus talked, and when Jesus died. The glory of Jesus Christ is not just in his miraculous birth, not just in his acts of love, the glory of Jesus Christ is seen supremely at the cross. This is according to John, what Jesus said. In John 12, Jesus said, the hour has now come. The cross is getting nearer. It's closer. He knows. He's going to Jerusalem. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's all about the cross. He asks, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. 
For this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension, this is the glorious God in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus became flesh. He became flesh, human, weak, killable, because we deserve death. And he came to die in our place. So now, fourthly, Jesus requires a response. Verses 10 to 13, verses we skipped, show us two different responses, and there are only two to this light, to this glory, to this word. Verse 10 says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. Indifference, denial. He came to his own, and his own people, the Jews, didn't receive him. Refusal, rejection, opposition, hatred, those lumped together are one negative response you might have to the word, the light, and the glory of God in Jesus. But here's another response, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood. That is, not of heritage or lineage. They were born not of the will of the flesh. That is, not because of their hard work or determination. They were born spiritually not of the will of man. Not because of their human decision even, but of God. The world is indifferent to him. They don't know him. Just think of Pilate at the crucifixion, the trial. I don't know. I mean, he just wants to please the crowd and keep peace in the city. He's indifferent about this Jesus. He didn't know him. His own people didn't receive him. Unreligious people, the Romans, and religious people, the Jews, They rejected him. But to all, to any, to whomever will believe in him and receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now take note here. To them who believe, who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. That means not all in this world are children of God. We're not born children of God. We need something radical, revolutionary, something like a new life, a a new birth, being born again, being born of God, not of parents, not of determination, not of decision, but of God. Not everyone is a child of God, but anyone can be. Any, regardless of your past, regardless of what you did last night, regardless of this year, regardless of of your parents, regardless of where you've come from, you can become a child of God, adopted, loved, cared for, a new family, a new life, a new world, a, a whole new humanity. Are you asking enough questions this Christmas? Maybe you're so busy you haven't stopped to ask any 
you know, metaphysical questions, big life kind of questions, meaning questions. Maybe you've been asking a lot of questions and all you got is questions. You have no answers. Jesus isn't the answer for every single little problem in your life, but I can say with the authority of the Bible, he's the answer. He's the logos, he's the word, he's the explanation, he's the one, he's the key, he's the star. Would you respond to him today? Would you do what John says you should do? Believe and receive him. Don't reject him, don't dismiss him. Receive him. Don't think indifference is playing it cool and safe. It's not. It's the same as rejection. It's just not as gutsy. Jesus is the word, the light, the glory of God. There's no neutrality with that. You better not yawn. As C.S. Lewis famously said, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him or kill him, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. I pray you do business with Jesus tonight. Christian, let us tonight afresh marvel at these truths. You might be familiar with these truths, but oh, how they should, no matter how many times we've heard them, stir our thoughts, warm our affections, open our mouths, or maybe put our hands over our mouths. Let us give thanks to a God who is this merciful, who is this glorious, who did this much for us. Let us trust him with our lives, with our futures, with our souls, with our everything, with our kids, with our money, our possessions. Let's trust him because of who he is, because of what he's done, because he came, because he will come again. He's the word, the light, and the glory. Let me close with a prayer that was written anonymously back in the 17th century about Christ, the Word. Would you bow with me? Let's pray this together. Our Father, in a world of created, changeable things, Christ and His Word alone remain unshaken. Oh, to forsake all creatures and to rest as a stone on him, the foundation, to abide in him and to be borne up by him. All my mercies, all our mercies come through Christ, who has designed, purchased, promised, and affected them. How sweet it is to be near him and to be filled with holy affections. You have given us a present in Jesus, your son, a mediator between yourself and our souls, a middleman who can span the chasm breached by sin and satisfy your justice. May we always lay hold upon this mediator. Let us know that he is dear to us by his word, that we are one with him. Oh, you who hold the hearts of all men in your hand, form our hearts according to your word. 
May Christ the word and his word be our strength and comfort tonight. Amen.